Hi, everyone. It's Jillian from Civic Genius, and I'm here today with David Bornstein, who is a co-founder and CEO of the Solutions Journalism Network. He is a journalist and author who focuses on social innovation, and his books include How to Change the World, Social Entrepreneurs, and the Power of New Ideas, The Price of a Dream, The Story of the Grameen Bank, and Social Entrepreneurship, What Everyone Needs to Know. David, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Jillian. It's a pleasure. So before I ever knew that solutions journalism was a thing, I used to read religiously a column in the New York Times called Fixes, which was this glorious antidote to the rest of the news that I consumed and mostly do still consume um, about the world and how it's on fire and it always will be. And these stories were about real programs, um, efforts, research that worked, that actually made a difference, that had some kind of evidence base. And it wasn't like firefighters are saving kittens from trees. It was like, how do we triple voter turnout? Here's something that works. Um, how can we better treat opioid addiction? Here's something that works. Um, these are actual solutions that were worth investing in. So I was wondering if you could just start off by telling us in your experience um, as a journalist and in your current role, what is solutions journalism? Yeah, and just to be clear, that that column, the fixes column, was was the precursor of the Solutions Journalism Network. That was a column that I worked on with Tina Rosenberg and really led to this idea of solutions journalism. Um, so the simplest definition is it's just rigorous reporting that looks at how people are trying to res respond to a problem and what we can learn from it. So, and the the rigor is really important. It's not good news. It's not trying to make people feel better. It's not puffery or PR or advocacy. It's really interrogating efforts to solve problems. Uh, there are no perfect solutions. So you're always gonna find things that work, things that move the needle, limitations, and, um, and uh, but there's always something that can be learned, especially if it's working. And in fact, if it's not working, there's usually something that can be learned too. Right. Um... Right. And I think you you had wrote a column, maybe it was the last one um, that you guys did for fixes. Um, and the title of it was, if we can report on the problem, we can report on the solution, um, which I think is is not how we typically encounter media. It's like if you, it, it's like, um, and maybe you've, I think you've actually written about this too, like to consider something hard news, it's like it has to be a you have to be writing about a problem. You have to be writing about corruption or something that is going in the wrong direction. Is that how you see a lot of journalism that's out there today? Yeah, and you know, there's this phrase, you know, that goes back more than a hundred years. You know, sunlight is the best disinfectant is sort of a, an abbreviation of that phrase. And journalists have internalized that that to mean like our job is really to to you know sh shine light on the dark corners of society in order to identify the problems so that they get fixed. So our job is to look and find the problems. And in fact, there's almost an implicit theory of change that journalists have, which it's not stated, but it's basically the world will get better when we show people how bad things are. Um, and if you, you know, if you think about that, it's really important, you know, to have a smoke detector in your house to let you know when when you have a problem and alerting you to that. But that doesn't solve the problem. You also need to have options. You need to know what you can do about it. And that's that. The other half of that theory of change, the world will get better when we show people, you know, what, what the problems are and get make people care about them and also show them what their uh, available options are at any given point in time about what we can do about those problems. And that, of course, is always changing as we gain more capacity to solve problems. Is there a story or a solution that you encountered in your career that really 
um, really moved the needle for you that made you realize this was the direction that you wanted to go? Yeah, well, very early on, I, uh, I was writing, I was a newspaper reporter, you know, working for New York Newsday, and I, I moved away from the daily journalism, and I went to Bangladesh and spent about a year there, over two years, reporting on microfinance. And this is way back, pretty much 30 years ago in the early 90s, uh, looking at the Grameen Bank and how it was trying to address poverty by providing what, what was then uh, this new idea of sort of microfinance, small small loans, mi- microloans to, to very people living in deep poverty in villages in Bangladesh. And I spent a year looking at that. How do they do that? How do you administer the loans? How do you collect the money? Does it really help people advance their livelihoods? When does it work? When doesn't it work? And, you know, what it showed me was that there really are opportunities to solve problems. Um, you know, the Grameen Bank, as many of you, you know, people will know, went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, many years later in 2006. And the idea of microfinance now is a global pattern that has unleashed a lot of human capacity around the world. Um, but that made me really curious because when I was trying to sell those stories to newspaper editors and magazine editors, I would constantly hear things like, well, if you can show me that that it's corrupt, or if you can show me that they're wasting the money, we've got a story. But this is just kind of a, you know, maybe we'll run it on Friday afternoon kind of thing. Like people couldn't see that there was a hard news. There was something important in reporting on an anti-poverty approach and really interrogating it and looking at um, sort of writing what we call a how done it. How are they actually doing this? Is it working? And what can we learn from it? What does it tell us about the nature of poverty? and our poverty alleviation efforts across the world. That gave me, you know, that was in some ways my first example of like, wow, there's a whole category of stories out there in the world that journalists are missing because, you know, they're looking for germs to kill, (laughs) uh, but they're missing all the antibodies. It's like they're pushing them out of the way and they're like, oh, move out of the way. You're blocking my view of the germs. Um, and they fail to realize that there's lots of other stuff out there that's very adaptive and very helpful, and in fact, things that could grow if we if we if we draw more more attention to them. Right. Have you seen that change at all? Has there been any kind of shift in attitudes among some of the the editors that you're talking about? Oh yeah, I mean that's really has been the mission of our network uh, to legitimize the idea of solutions journalism as a, as, a, as a credible news practice, and then to spread it and move it from a, from a, a nice-to-have to a need-to-have, and from the framework of good news, which is always seen as not really that important, to really this is news that helps you intensify pressure and hold people accountable. Because the truth is you can't really hold people or institutions accountable for poor performance unless you can show that better performance is possible and is in fact being achieved in other places. Once you do that and you can say this city has a better anti-poverty approach, this city has a better response to mental health issues or to opioids or what have you, or this town, it puts, it increases the pressure on your community to do something smarter. Um, so that comparative, looking at who we call the positive deviance in any data set, who are the people that are outperforming, that are performing better than one would expect, especially given their resources, what can we learn from them and how do we use those stories to in, to raise the bar, the benchmark of performance for others. That's a very important feedback system that helps systems improve, feedback mechanism that helps systems improve, um, together with focusing on the negative deviance, which mobilize outrage and a sense of 
anger and often empathy to get people to care about a problem, you also need to mobilize the positive deviants to circulate the knowledge about what we can do about it. And when you bring together outrage, out, outrage and knowledge, put them together, you get change. Um, and that's really what our work is about. So that idea is becoming much more legitimized in journalism now. We've worked with more than 600 news organizations, um, engaged with close to 30,000 journalists. And in fact, it's it's becoming quite a mainstream idea in journalism now. Um, still not a need to have all the time, but much more, um, much more commonplace. Yeah. And you do, so that's, you said, I think 600 outlets and how many journalists? We have engaged with close to 30,000, it's about 28,000, something like that, who have used our resources, participated in workshops, engaged with us in some way. We have online resources and we have done a lot of direct training in news organizations. And increasingly, we are working with other organizations that are training journalists and we're sort of doing a, um, you know, a partnership, train the trainer kind of approach. Nice. And where, um, could you talk about kind of what kinds of outlets those reporters are at? Are they in local communities at local outlets? Are they national, both? Yeah, so it totally runs the gamut. I mean, you know, the fixes column and some of the work we're doing now with the Headway Initiative is in the New York Times. And we've engaged with the BBC and the Guardian and large national or international news organizations. But increasingly, we've really worked a lot with local news organizations, Metro Dailies, digital startups, diverse led and serving news organizations. Um, you know, increasingly, we're finding that, especially, and you know, if you get to the question of trust and polarization in the United States, for example, there's a lot more trust in local news than there is in national news. You know, the same people who would never believe something that if it if it appears in Fox or on the other side, if it appears in the New York Times, may believe something uh, in their local news organization because it's it's hard to argue with reality at the local level. Proximity is something that creates a lot more trust, and you can bump into the reporter sometimes in the coffee shop, and they're they're human beings. So even if they're writing something that you might disagree with, um, there's a way to actually engage that that is that is. Um, you know, and, and trust levels are much higher for local news than they tend to be for for um, larger uh, national or regional outlets. Um, so, but we've worked, you know, small, large, medium. It's really important, especially at the local level, to have good solutions journalism because, you know, what you have in many communities across the United States is, you know, we really understand our problems. I mean, most people, if you go into the communities, we we have mental health teenagers issues related to perhaps drug addiction, if it's an opioid issue, issues related to climate change. We've had 300 year floods in the last 10 years, you'll hear in, in many counties across the US. And if you say, what are, what are your, what are your options? What, what are you doing about it? People sort of, you know, they don't, they say, I don't know. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know what could we do about it. And then you pull back and you say, wait a minute, there's more than 3000 counties in the United States. If only 1% of them are doing something really smart, against the same problem that you have, there's already 30 lessons that are scattered somewhere in this country that might be really useful to deal more effectively with something that is causing suffering in your town. So that's what solutions journalism is all about. It's about identifying these positive deviants, these positive outliers, finding, writing those how done it stories, how did they actually achieve those results, and then bringing them back to the places that could really use that knowledge. Yeah. Um, I love it. And I, I love um, the emphasis on local news, I think is is so exciting, because as you said, that's really where, 
you know, people encounter local news in a kind of different um, different way that they encounter local news. I'm sorry, than they encounter national news. Um, and, you, you know, so you talked to a lot about trust, and we've certainly seen declining trust in media overall, much more at the national level um, in past years. And it's funny, so we Civic Genius runs um, this local citizen problem-solving event in communities across the country. And for 2022, we're focusing on digital disinformation and free speech. And when I started asking people, what comes to mind when I say we're doing something on digital disinformation, I was really surprised by how people responded. So the way that I respond when I originally started looking at this topic is, oh, we're talking about, you know, social media disinformation campaigns on vaccines or on the elections. And it was very clear to me that that's what that topic meant. But when I started asking people, a response that I got much more frequently than I expected is, oh, you're talking about mainstream media. And I got that more so on the right, but also on the left. So I'm curious what you think is behind that loss of trust that's gotten us to this place where we are. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that there's been a real um, complacence in journalism that people trust you because we get our facts right. And we did, we got the little fact check stamp here. We called up our sources and we double checked what they said. There's something deeper about the way trust really works, and especially during times of high conflict. We're in a period of high conflict now, and the rules are different in high conflict. Um, Amanda Ripley has written a really great book called High Conflict, which describes why um, things change. And, and there are many, many economic and social forces that are creating the intensity of the conflict now. It's not just the news. The news is reflecting it more than causing it. But what happens in journalism is that, um, or what happens in general around trust is, trust is a function of relationships. Like you trust people when you really believe they have your back. Um, and there's a phrase like, uh, you know, I don't care what you know until I know that you care. That really, really captures the problem that a lot of news or organizations have when they are just reporting on a, to a community or on a community, and they're not able to telegraph that we really care about you. Because if the news is just another story about the problems we have and yet another story about the problems we have, first of all, that's a privilege for many communities that they really can't afford. And secondly, that doesn't convey caring. That, that, that conveys, you know, most people will just take the battery out of the smoke detector at a certain point and say, stop beeping um, metaphorically. And that's what people do with the news increasingly. They just, they turn it off. And that's, there's lots of research that shows that that's happening. But what we can do with, for example, the solutions journalism approach is you can, if you're a local news organization, you can say, hey, you know, we have surveyed you and you said these are the five most important problems in our community that we, that we really care about. We've gone out and we spent the last three months doing solutions oriented reporting to look at other communities that are responding to these kinds of problems and, and getting good results. And we're bringing back that knowledge to our community. And let's have a conversation about what our options are, what we can learn from other places, because uh, we really want to help the community get better and solve these problems. Now, once you have are in a conversation like that, you can talk about trust because you're being helpful to people. And whether they're on the other side of the partisan divide or if there's low levels of trust that are related to, say, racism, for example, which is, you know, systemic racism, and the, these these narratives that journalism narratives of deficits that journalism has foisted on many communities, um, you can then have a conversation around: um, Is this news helpful to you? 
If not, let us know why. That's how trust gets built. It's not just by telling people we got our facts right and you know and and live with it. Um, and you know we've seen this with obviously with COVID, where there's this whole scientific community that says. Uh, you know, just trust us about the vaccines or trust Pfizer about the vaccines, which is hard for a lot of people to do because of ingrained sense. And, um, and, and they haven't really addressed it at that level of really nuanced conversation of how you build trust through relationships. Right. And, and I, it seems like journalists who are in these local communities are maybe more likely to have those relationships with, you know, a local doctor, a local expert, someone who may have some standing in the community would, you know, would know the right person to go to. Like, do you think that local solution, local solutions, journalists, that those roots are, are helpful in rebuilding some of this trust long-term? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing right now, one of the number one decisions that people make when they're consuming news is who's the messenger? You know, where did I get this from? And increasingly, they're not even getting it from the news source, they're getting it from a feed. So may be, they may be getting it from an aggregator, a person who, who chooses a bunch of news articles to highlight and then highlights them through their Twitter feed or another social media feed. So that you're trusting that person's judgment about what they think is important and what they think is believable. So you now are, you know, you, you need to really create um, to work with these these communities of interest, these networks and platforms that are sort of stand-ins for how do I make sense of the world? And, um, mm -hmm. you know, the other thing about misinformation or disinformation, um, which is important to know, I think important to, to talk about more, and we've talked about platforms and, you know, like Russian trolls and all sorts of things about how, how insidious it is. Um, but one of the things that hasn't been talked about a lot is what is what creates the, the appetite for misinformation? What is the sense, uh, what is the emotional sort of um, receptiveness towards misinformation? And there is some research that suggests that it's a feeling, people who feel really out of control, who are having trouble making sense of events, um, may be more susceptible. Um, and the feeling of being out of control is one of the feelings that is what journalism actually produces more than anything else. The studies on news avoidance show that journalism contributes to feelings of negative affect, hopelessness, um, sense of powerlessness. Um, and those feelings, feeling out of control, makes people more susceptible to, um, to you know, conflict entrepreneurs or <laughs> the people who, who want to take advantage of that emotional state, because people don't like to feel out of control. It's not, you know, we've, we, we've evolved to really try to feel a sense of control around our environment. That's really important to people emotionally. Um, so to the degree that news contributes to anxiety without efficacy, it, it may be also contributing to the appetite for disinformation as well. Do you think that that has always been the case? Was there a golden age of journalism where it where you feel like it really worked hand in hand with civic institutions to produce the kind of democracy we want? Or do you see this as a kind of bumpy journey from the beginning of modern journalism? Yeah, you know, it's it's such a hard question. I I often think that people's sense of the world is not driven by absolute circumstance as much as it's driven by um, how, the gap between their expectations and what they're actually getting out of the world. And I think what happened um, was for a long period in, in American history, if I'm just speaking about the US now, 
the institutions were actually outpacing people's expectations. And, you know, then there was this period sort of in the 50s and 60s where people suddenly got more than they expected they would get in terms of, you know, not everybody, of course, I'm saying in, in general, sort of the, the post-war boom. Um, and you've had this long period, I think, really since the 70s, where our expectations for equity, for fairness, for how for our children's, you know, how well they'll do, for what we can expect in terms of wage increases and all that, have actually not kept pace with the institutions. Um, oh, sorry, the institutions have not kept pace with our expectations. So even though absolute levels may have improved in, in a lot of ways that you can measure, the sense of are we doing well has actually decreased. Um, and, and we've had a really big um, change in certain areas where the expectations around treating people, all, all people fairly in the society, whether they have a disability or, um, or of, a of a race or of a, or of a particular gender, those expectations have changed very dramatically, very quickly, and the institutions to deliver on those expectations have proceeded, but much more slowly. And so the gap is much wider, um, and that that creates a sense of malaise, a sense of our society is is uh, is you know a sense of of hurt and pain in in terms of disappointment in our institutions. Mm -hmm. And a That's, sense it seems yeah. like of I want to burn it down. <laughs> I want to burn it down. I want to blow up capitalism. Um, you know, you, you can, you, you know, life expectancy at the beginning of the 19th, 20th century was something like 40 something years. Um, you know, we forget how much has changed and how quickly things have changed in terms of sort of health, how many, you know, the percentage of people in the world who are educated to a high school level, percentage of women and girls who are educated to a high school level in the world. These things have changed quite dramatically in the last 30 years. And yet, um, you know, people's expectations and disappointments um, are really being fed. And, and of course, you now have journalism is dealing with the poly crisis, which is a word I recently got from a friend, you know, which, which is like you, you literally can pick up the, the paper and, and read about climate change and systemic racism and massive wealth inequality and the unraveling of democracy and war crimes. And you haven't even gotten to the bottom of the, of the, of the page at the front. So, so there's this, you know, you can literally gut people emotionally before 10 a.m. with journalism. And, and there's this old style sort of news, like, you know, people just deal with it. You know, this is the news. And, you know, I have this analogy. I think the, world, the journalism is becoming like a Ferrari. It's getting quicker and quicker and quicker and faster and faster in terms of its ability to tell people what's happening. Um, and it runs into this dirt track called the human nervous system, which can only handle, you know, like 12 miles an hour, and that's it. And people literally um, are just overwhelmed by so much information about so many problems happening together and so many existential kind of really scary problems like climate change, particularly. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why solutions journalism is a kind of behavioral journalism, really trying to deal with people and the kinds of informations and stories we need to truly draw out and activate people so that they can participate in building a better society. Yeah, I, I've heard, um, you know, so we're a civic engagement organization. So we have, we're very like excited to get people out door knocking and, you know, doing all the things that they're supposed to do. And um, I will be 
reminded inevitably like once a week of research suggesting that people often don't really want to do that stuff. Like people are very busy. People just want the government to work and they don't necessarily want to be as engaged as, you know, I would like to think that people should be engaged. Do you find that on the ground or do you think that that is potentially less true because of all these other forces that you're talking about? I mean, the, the thing that we see with our with local news partners across the country is that there there really is a yearning among people to to connect with each other. People are not happy with the level of conflict in the United States. The only people who are right now happy with the level of conflict in the United States are media personalities who are who get rich off this conflict and Russia and China. You know, I mean, that's who is really benefiting from Americans hating other Americans, even within their own family. Um, so there is this kind of surprising thing that you find when you actually get to the local level and you get off Twitter and you start seeing there is this desire to connect with each other. And what, what has happened is, and this gets back to you know the kinds of conversations you're leading, is um, there used to be enough common ground that people could hold on to so that their differences, they could talk about their differences and they could hold conflict um, in a productive way. You, you know, we, dis we may disagree about abortion, we may disagree about immigration, we may disagree about um, the relative importance of different kinds of problems, but we can all still go out to dinner together and talk about them. And I think, you know, for, for, a, for a variety of reasons that the amount of common ground that's holding that the critical center is much, much less. You can see it in terms of the overlaps of positions in, in government as well. Many drivers of that sort of thing. So I think it's really important, you know, and, and we've done some work training journalists, really speaking to conflict mediators and then training journalists in how you can actually um, tell stories and frame stories in ways that, that help people feel um, listened to and respected. Um, because one of the most fundamental things that you see as a journalist is how often people feel really misrepresented when you write your story. And then they contact and you say, that's not at all what I said. It's not at all what I said. And you say, well, I have the tape. I have the recording. And then they say, well, that's not at all what I meant. And that's true. It usually isn't what people really meant. You didn't really get the heartbeat. You just got the soundbite. And you, journalists, were listening for a particular message even before you did the interview. You were listening for some confirmation of an idea. So um, there's lots of ways that journalism can um, can depolarize conversations um, by really listening, by having for getting journalists really listening better and learning from other fields that deal with high conflict, like conflict mediation. Not being mediators, yeah. but learning from the way we listen and interview um, when you're trying to create space for true listening. Yeah, it's such a great point. And I'm, I'm reading um, Amanda Ripley's book right now, actually, High Conflict. And it opens with a story about a divorce lawyer, which is not the kind of conflict I necessarily think about when I'm thinking of political polarization or January 6th. But it is really amazing to see those exact lessons applied in all these different venues and kinds of conversations. Yeah, and Gary, that lawyer, was has, has been actually trained our team and trained a bunch of journalists in our network. We've really learned a lot from his his work. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, the the um, you know the the essay that Amanda had written that uh, informed our work was called "Complicating the Narratives," 
and um, and she drew up like really key principles and and in the kinds of questions that, that journalists could ask that actually help people to be able to speak with one another respectfully across lines of of, of real conflict of of hard conflict. Um, we have we actually have resources on our website um, for people who are interested in those questions, which I could send along later. Um, do you think that social media is a big driver of this, or do you think that they take more than their fair share of heat when it comes to um, to information and journalism and uh, and polarization? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that you know that it, it's when you are communicating with people and you're sort of fed up and you send out your little your your tweet or whatever. Um, you know, it, it's not at all the same as when people talk to each other. I mean, I, when I was writing the New York times column, we, I used to get, you know, I used to, we used to moderate our comments and we'd get a lot of sort of hate mail kind of comments. And sometimes I'd reply to them and say, you know, I'm sorry you felt that way, but I was trying to, this is what I was trying to do. This is how I saw it. People will almost write, almost always write back saying, Oh, I'm so sorry. That was, that, that, that came out the wrong way. I'm just blah, blah, blah. And then people would dial it back. And as soon as you have a human connection, People don't behave. No, people, human beings don't in person behave like they behave on Twitter. Um, it makes no sense to do that. We're not, we, had, we didn't evolve. We have so many really powerful skills in, in terms of, of, you know, reading people's faces and, and you know, sort of um, coming in sync with people we're with that are very, very um, high level human community skills. Um, none of that seems to, come into play at all when you're in social media. It's just the opposite. It's very much the race to the bottom of the brainstem kind of thing. And, and of course the platforms, you know, if you've seen the movie, The Social Dilemma and other, the platforms are, are, are optimized in many cases to exploit the more, the primal reptilian brain kind of tendencies um, in a way that is, makes a lot of money for them and destroys democracy basically. And also people's lives. That's a, a good thesis and <laughs> destroys democracy in people's lives. I'm curious if you think that do people, do readers, do regular people have a good understanding of how journalists do their jobs? I've seen some, I have a lot of friends who are journalists and have, you know, asked the question before, when do you feel like you've gotten it right. Like you're, if you're investigating something new and you run a story and eventually you've got a deadline and it's got to get out there, like what makes you feel confident that it's ready to go? And I asked one friend who's a tech journalist and she was like, I never feel ready. Like here are, I, you know, and she kind of walked me through the process of here's how she gets into a new topic. Here's how she figures out who to talk to. Here's what she asks them. Here's how she, you know, verifies what she's hearing. And she described it in a way that was kind of uniquely vulnerable and different than the way I've heard, um, you know, you talked about journalists having to, to be really authoritative and we fact-checked and here's what the news is. And the way that she described it to me just gave a lot more depth to me of the way that good journalists approach their jobs. I'm just curious, do you feel like that's out there? Do you feel like people can benefit from understanding how journalism ideally is, is done? Uh, I, I do. I think that most people, journalists could do a much better job talking to the public and the public would under appreciate them if they just did like your old high school teacher, like show your work kind of thing, you know, which is basically like, this is how I got this story. 
You know, these are the people I spoke to. These are the people I didn't have time to, or I opted not to speak to. Um, these are the notes, the primary notes that this is like, if you go to the, like the wire cutter, which is the, the New York times product consumer, um, uh, consumer, you know, um, uh, recommendations about products. There's oftentimes the, the, the people have a, a page saying why you should trust me. Like, you know, like I, you know, I know everything about laser printers. I've spent 18 years like testing laser printers. And when I say this is a good one, like I actually know what I'm talking about. And, and there's, but most journalists don't ever say like, this is why you should trust me when I'm saying this about climate change, or this is why you should trust me when I'm reporting on, you know, our education system or, or what have you. Um, it's implied that you should trust me because I'm a journalist and because, um, you know, we fact check. Um, but, but going that, you know, showing your work and going that extra line, especially at a time of deep distrust is necessary um, because, you know, we've seen, you know, the biggest problem with climate change reporting is that people just, you know, shrug it off. They just say, I don't trust these people. I don't trust, you know, if it's case of COVID, I don't trust, um, you know, any of these scientists kind of thing like that. So trust is, you know, is a really big problem for, for the general audience when journalists are on panels, especially at the local level, I've been to some, you know, some of our partners have had these local, gatherings and the journalists actually talk about this is why I became an education reporter this is why I think journalism is important this is who I am this is why I think it's really important and for our society I have children too when they become human beings in front of the audience people change their views they say you know I've never heard anyone ever talk about being a journalist that way um, and so that's um, and there is this sort of tough guy professional culture in journalism that's kind of a holdover where um, that work is seen as like, I don't have time for that. I have another story to do, you know? Um, so, so just developing relationships with the, with the community and the people reporting on it um, is a really, really great thing when it happens. And it, it almost always leads to, to people being more appreciative. And from the part of the journalist, like one of the techniques that we've learned through this program that I mentioned, complicating the narratives, um, was this technique called looping, which conflict mediators do it all the time. It's basically someone says something to you and you basically loop it back to me. You say, so what I'm hearing is you said this and this and this, did I get it right? 95% of the time people will say, no, that's not quite right. What I meant was, and then you do it again. And sometimes you have to go like two or three times, maybe three or four times until the purpose says, yeah, person says, yes, that's, that's true. That's what I mean. That you're much more likely if you go with that in your story to get a person feeling that their viewpoint was accurately reflected and that they weren't made to look stupid because you wrote, you wrote down the very first thing that came out of their mouth. If everybody wrote down the first thing that came out of my mouth or that came out of their mouths, everybody would look pretty stupid because we, we come out with dumb things all the time until we really are thinking about it and, and we're not, we're not, um, that, you know, not people are not that eloquent from the, from the first when someone sticks a mic in front of their face. It's just that's not the way humans work. Um, and that is a big pain point too. people seeing their stuff as a, their their own opinions appearing in print and not recognizing themselves in the articles. And you only have to do that once to lose for that person to no longer trust journalism writ, writ large. You know, so that's another pain point, too. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. I used to do um, 
PR and communications consulting and like have run, I don't know, hundreds of media trainings for people. And it's like, no, it is not your normal instinct to speak in talking points. Like it's a learned skill for most people. So the, the idea that you would just roll out of bed speaking, you know, eloquently um, to a camera right. is. Uh, and, and sometimes people, when you loop them, they say, wow, I didn't even realize you helped me understand my own thoughts. You know, now, of course, you don't want to do it with the mayor. You're sort of with big political people. There's this sense of like, we're looking for the Freudian slip that really tells us the truth. You know, so there's this sense of wanting to, you know, the gotcha of, of the, you know, the quote that is truer than what they would have said, like a practice politician and so forth. But when you're talking about with ordinary human beings who are not in the public, um, you know, not in public service and not in public, public light, um, most people will not get to their the true meaning of what they want to say um, the first time. Right. You know? Right. Do you... So I'm curious on... Um, we're talking about social media a little bit and, and the algorithms and sort of, you know, there's certainly a lack of transparency in what gets boosted. We don't necessarily... Like, I don't know what your social media feed looks like. You don't know what mine looks like. Um, kind of potentially another source of, of polarization. And I'm curious if you think there are policy solutions that we need to solve some of these problems, whether it's pushing back on misinformation, um, whether it is pushing back on political polarization. Um, do you think that there are policies we need in place, whether they're government policies, um, policies that, that tech companies could implement? Um, or do you think that it's really more of a community-led and individual problem? Well, I, you know, I'm a believer that the, the tech platforms should be seen as publishers. I think that they should be more responsible for their content. You know, this idea that we're just an intermediary and, you know, I know Facebook has thousands of people that are trying to clean out content on a regular basis, but they're desperate to not be responsible and seen as a publisher. Um, I really don't know the full implications of that idea, so don't hold me to that. I haven't researched it, you know, that well, but that's a sense of like, if you have a massive place where you know millions of people are going to see something and it because of your platform um, a lot of disinformation or misinformation is getting out to people I think you should be responsible for that um, in some way far more than than is currently the case um, in terms of bigger like actual policies I'm I think that there should be more public funding for local news um, you know and, and there are efforts now to, to move that forward and to make it easier for for the public to be able to choose the local news source and have some of their tax money go go for that I do think that local news is is um, you know is a sort of a prerequisite for a healthy democracy you know there's famous quotes about I'd rather live with a healthy press you know the, the healthy press being being um, I forget the exact quote than to um, I think it was Benjamin Franklin we could pull that one up. Yeah, um, I'll pull it. <laughs> a, a healthy government or a I know what you press. mean. <laughs> yeah. But um, that, you know, the, the idea of an informed citizenry being able to deliberate and, you know, you know, the consent of the governed and being able to sort of have public deliberations about not only who we delegate our power to, but really how we work in a, in, in a, in a civic fashion to, to rebuild our, our institutions. They need to be renewed quite dramatically. That really requires like really good information and, and timely, accurate, trustworthy information. And you know, we 
there's not enough money to pay for that right now. So you you know a lot of what happens in local journalism, you've got sort of two people covering a community. It's 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 really in dire straits. So just to recognize the role role particularly of local news, and you know to be able to have more public supports for different you know, for local news that really covers um, not just geographically, but different, um, you know, issue areas that are really important too. Um, I wouldn't say it should be driven by public support. I think the, the, the market is still very important. Philanthropy is still very important, but it would be definitely uh, an improvement if news organizations were not having to do all of this work on a shoestring, which is really what they're doing. I mean, the, you know, journalists around the country, local local reporters that we work with, they get paid very little and they work really hard. And if people, I think, understood how hard they work for how little they get and why they do it, I don't think you'd see nearly as much, um, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, the attitudes towards journalists, I think, would be would be dramatically different if people really saw what it was. They'd, right. they'd see them, you know, they'd hold them in as high esteem as we hold nurses in our society. <clears throat> right. Right. There's a small universe of people in media who are making a lot of money and that's not not necessarily the uh the norm for your rank and file um journalist. Do you think could you talk a little bit about um and you may have some resources at Solutions Journalism Network um as well which I would love you to share. Are there things that you think individuals could be doing should be doing that can move forward this ethos that you're you're talking about um whether it's through civic action through through journalism in some way what can individuals do yeah so i think whenever i think of like the 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 core question that underlies solutions journalism um it's really the question it gets back to this sort of an overarching question is what's missing so so if you think what is missing from the public conversation or the public consciousness that's preventing our community from becoming the community that it could become that it wants to become Right. And how does journalism feed into that? So the first question is like, what are all the components of understanding what's missing and how to fill that in? So sometimes it's data, evidence. So if you're in the business of understanding, if you're in the business of 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 research in some ways, there's a real need for journalists to be able to understand what's missing in terms of our understanding. You know, what are the 10 models that our community really should be aware of because we're trying to deal with, you know, not, you know, we're a rural town that doesn't want to lose all our youth over the next 10 years, which is a real problem in many towns, or we're an urban um, center that is trying to figure out how to advance economic mobility in, in an urban context. Well, there's a lot of role for researchers, for academics, for students um, to be helping supply the knowledge that can then be circulated by the journalists. Journalists are in the business of highlighting things, primarily telling stories to draw attention and to be able to make sense of things that are happening. Um, they don't invent things. They shouldn't be proposing solutions. They're in the business of reporting on meaningful activity. So, so, so there's, and then, you know, so there's, how do you find these stories? We really need to help journalists through research and data, be able to find better examples of, of those kinds of stories. Then if you think about the, people in the social media world, you know, so many people have platforms, they might be reaching 10,000 people, or they might be reaching a quarter of a billion, if you're, you know, one of the top celebrities. Um, ask yourself, what am I commuting? What am I communicating on my platform? You know, there's a lot of people who have 
big platforms that want to be very socially conscious or that really care about the environment or they might care about racial justice or they might care about animal rights, what have you. To the degree that you have a lot of power, what's the stuff you're putting on your platform? Are you just telling people over and over and over again how serious the problem is, how terrible things are, how much we should worry? If you are, you should also consider looking at what are the adaptive responses to that problem. I can inform my quarter billion readers or my 100,000 readers about new adaptations. We could do a story a day for anyone who wants to tweet about solutions journalism in the climate crisis or solutions journalism to reduce wastewater in agriculture or solutions journalism about how companies are reducing their, their carbon footprint, what have you. Those stories are out there. There's a lot of them. And so anyone who's in the social media world, who's an amplifier or a sense maker um, could really improve their, their feeds and, and, and help society be better, better informed about their options, our options. Um, and then, you know, as an, as an individual, if you are in the business of consuming journalism, um, you know, I'd pay for it. <laughs> you know, I would say like, you know, it, it, is, it really does take money to produce good journalism and use whatever opportunities you have to insist on a better balance in the journalism you're getting, whether it's from your feeds directly or from the news sources that you like to say, you know, you covered this problem 30 times in the past, you know, couple of months, but I've only seen two stories that even hint at an opportunity or a solution about what we can do about it. That doesn't seem right. And use your own voice as a, as a, um, to influence the coverage that you get. People complain about the news all the time. They can also use that, that grievance to, art, to, to, to insist on something better. And then of course, if you're in public policy um, or working at any level of government, you know, look outside your own county and look outside your own town. There's almost always, and the solutions journalism model, um, the stories that we have, we have thousands of stories that we track in our database. There's almost always other people doing things that you can learn from this kind of, you know, all teach all learn opportunity now to learn from other counties, even other countries is quite available. And, um, you know, one of the things that we found journalists are doing much more often is reporting on solutions from other towns and sort of importing ideas to their own community. Um, it's a great way to circulate um, knowledge. It's like journalists like these cross pollinating, taking you know, taking it from one flower and bringing it to another. Yeah, I love that. And you mentioned, I think, the solution story tracker, uh, which is on your website. Yeah. Am I, is that the Solu correct? Yeah, solution story tracker. Yeah, it's got 13,000. So yeah, I love you. That's amazing. I love the idea of just, um, you know, recommending to people that if you see a, a problem, as you said, that's covered in your community a lot, go to the solution story tracker, see if there's an interesting solution out there um, and give a heads up to the the folks who are who are writing about it. It's kind of a, an easy action step that people could take. Yeah, so much. And also in universities, people who are educators or students, you know, most, you know, university classes, um, they'll be dealing with major global challenges. Very often it's critical thinking about these challenges. So there's a lot of focusing on the, on the nature of the problems, the drivers of those problems, the inequity. Um, incorporating solutions journalism in the teaching of a course saying, here's also, here's five ways that people are trying to improve the healthcare system. What do you think of these? Which one would you, if you were a policymaker, which one would you support and why? You know, so people can really start thinking, you know, both critically, but also constructive thinking around problem solving gets fed in a much more regular basis 
um, in any school. It can happen in high schools, it can happen in middle schools. It's a real opportunity. Yeah. David, this is fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Um, is there anything uh, that you want to add that we haven't talked about? Well, I just really appreciate, you know, the civic conversations. And I think that that's, you know, the work that that in, in trying to, you know, help people depolarize, um, you know, conversations. I think one of the things that I would just add is, um, you know, one of the things that I think is useful about the solutions journalism model is that, that as I said, that we're writing these stories that are sort of how done it's. They're like protective stories in a way. It's like, how did this school increase, you know, its graduation rate? How did this community, which is low resourced, manage to be one of the, you know, really improve its um, the mental health status of its youth, or what have you? Um, the thing that these stories get to is they kind of get to the engineering part of the brain. Like when we start talking about problem solving, the part of our brain that's like a lawyer that just wants to defend our position, it kind of gets quiet. The other part of our brain that thinks like an engineer and wants to sort of scribble diagrams on napkins and sort of think creatively about how could we do better gets activated. That's a much less polarized part of our psyche that's a part of our psyche that lives in curiosity it's it's in it's it's more in the realm of imagination it's it's open to ideas it's an open system um and to the degree that our conversations and our journalism can feed that part of our of our brains or even our emotions it's very very helpful i think that we can we could we have to remember when we're having conversations thinking about what could we do what are the opportunities here? How could we do better? Is is very often a more fruitful and happier place to go than you know you know where did we screw up and who's to blame? Which is very often um, the thing that will just cause us to clash our swords and leave feeling um, badly afterwards. So that's always available. You know, you know, thinking about you know getting trying to get people into problem solving, into thinking creatively about the world that they want to build. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're speaking our, our love language. Um, David Bornstein, <laughs> thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Thank you, Jillian. It's a pleasure. Mm -hmm.